0: If so, it sure would be a big surprise to policymakers in Washington. They're counting on low inflation and low interest rates to continue indefinitely as they prepare to spend trillions to, quote, reimagine the U.S. economy. But they might be in for just such a big surprise. Today, I'm speaking with Charles Goodhart and Minaj Pradhan to discuss the future of inflation and how long-term demographic changes may mean its shocking return. Charles is a financial markets professor emeritus at the London School of Economics and a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. Minaj is the founder and chief economist of the independent macroeconomic research firm Talking Heads. They are the co-authors of The Great Demographic Reversal, Aging Societies, Waning Inequality, and An Inflation Revival, released last August. Charles and Minaj, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So what is the current consensus about inflation? It's my sense that the concern, people, it's, it's almost treated as anachronistic, like it's a concern from a different era and sure, we should talk about it, but it is very low on the list of concerns. So how do you, what do you think? What is the consensus from your perspective? I think that you're absolutely right about that. And indeed,
1: it's an extension of what has been happening uh, for the last uh, uh, 30 years, since about 1990, that inflation has come down steadily and has remained very low. And the general assumption that people have is that unless something remarkable happens, the world will go on much as it has in the past. There's also the view that uh, the reduction of inflation to steady low levels was quite largely due to better monetary policy and that the central banks will be able to continue holding inflation down um, and in our book uh, we challenge both those views uh, we believe uh, so
0: just that- just, one, just one second so so up till now so right now the view is basically um, that this was a uh, this was a great central banking, Success, and if if inflation pressures were to reemerge, central banks know what to do. They have a protocol, and they would uh, and they would again be able to suppress inflation, inflation expectations. So this is this is not this is not a, this is not a big problem.
1: I think. That I think you. Uh, but I think that is unduly complacent. It's partly that people uh, now have largely forgotten how difficult it was to, to turn inflation around at the end of the 1970s and how much political and other forms of courage uh, Paul Volcker, Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher had to, uh, had to extend. Um, and it was easier actually in many ways to turn inflation around then than it would be now uh, because the debt ratios are so much higher. And um, the fiscal implications for the budget of raising interest rates now and the implications for heavily indebted private companies uh, are now much greater than they were then. So it will actually be a, a quite difficult job, and it will be against the instincts of many politicians uh, for interest rates to go up other than glacially slowly.
0: And were you going to say
1: something I-
2: like? Yeah, I was going to add that, you know, one, one perspective that we're trying to bring in here um, and, and the reason that the central banks have picked up um, so much credibility with, with, with everyone is that, you know, there's also been an ongoing debate that the Phillips curve is dead. Um, and so really central banks don't have to worry about inflation. All they have to worry about is growth. If growth goes down, you cut. If growth uh, looks like it's overheating, you raise rates to slow things down and their job is relatively easy. The problem is... Um, that if you go back to I think a uh, uh, interview a decade ago by James Bullard, he was on NPR um, and he said, "Well, the Fed has the responsibility for killing the Fed. That's what for getting the Phillips curve. That's what we are disagreeing with. We think it's China that put the Phillips curve in a coma, and it's the pandemic and the demography that are going to revive it." If you look at what China did, China was a massive disinflationary force. No one disagrees with that. I think there is broad consensus around that. China allowed uh, the U.S. and advanced economies to focus on consumption. That's how the housing story came up, uh, the savings glut, and so on and so forth. And it did enough investment uh, for the entire global economy, so that the the the, the average. Global composition of growth was pretty sound. It was just investment in China, consumption uh, in the advanced economies, uh, prices uh, were coming down because China was a very low cost and increasingly more adept uh, technology manufacturer. And so it really worked against what you would see in the Phillips curve, that the Phillips curve would have predicted that as growth gets better and better, inflation resurfaces. But there was China disinflating the world as its labor force got integrated. And so the problem is that in the models that the central bank estimated, they could not really catch that because demography is a very slow moving variable. Their forecast horizons are two to three years. And, you know, with with the effect that, well, what do you do? You plug in expectations and expectations over the last 30 or 35 years have shown a falling trend. And that falling trend is econometrically significant. Now, the question is, who do you attribute it to? And central banks naturally said, well, it's our inflation targeting regimes and so on and so forth. And they were not wrong, except that they were not fully right either. And so once this story reemerges, I think the challenge is going to be for central bankers to accept that, well, they weren't responsible for 100% of the disinflation. And so they cannot control 100% of the inflation that's going to come. And likely what we're seeing right now is that the, the, the dominance of fiscal policy, the strength with which it's shown up, and the second role that, the secondary role that monetary policy is playing is gonna revive that story a lot faster than people think.
0: So you're telling a story where the, so the, the common story is again, a victory by central banks. And what, you, what the both of you are saying is, that's very well as part of the story, Um, sort of the war against inflation, raising interest rates, changing people's expectations. But it is not all the story. And the other part of the story, an extremely important part of that story is this labor supply shock driven by, I would assume all those baby boomers are entering the workforce and then the entrance of China and then Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet empire into that global labor market. And there seems to be a lot less talk, as I follow this over the years, on that big labor supply shock. Is that right?
1: Absolutely correct. There's another element in it too. Uh, With the declining birth rate and the rise of consumer durables, washing machines, refrigerators, and so on, it released an enormous number of women who would otherwise have worked entirely uh, on home activities to join the workforce. So it was not only the fact that the baby boomers were joining the the workforce, but that half the population, the female half of the population, were now actually working in paid employment uh, instead of being at home looking after their children and washing the clothes.
0: So because of this immense amount of labor entering global labor markets, the impact of that has been weak worker bargaining power, and low inflation on wages and prices.
1: Absolutely correct. Uh, and that's basically the story. I remember in an earlier you said that uh, central banks gained credibility because they had to raise interest rates to lower inflation. Actually, they didn't really. And over the whole period since inflation targets were put in, interest rates both nominal and real have been trending downwards fairly steadily. Um, And uh, since the great financial crisis, even having thrown the kitchen sink at expansion, central banks were not able to raise inflation back to target, which effectively means that there were very, very strong disinflationary forces uh, lurking in the background. Uh, And when you say, that people think that the central banks know how to deal uh, with inflation. Uh, Remember that only 20 years ago, virtually every economist in the world would have said that a central bank can easily deal with deflation. All it's got to do is create money. And yet that hasn't actually been working all that well because of the very, very strong underlying disinflationary forces and the trashing of labor bargaining power Uh, because of the huge supply shock. There's never been such a large positive labour supply shock. The availability of labour to any employer who shipped production to a low-wage centre, it more than doubled over 30 years. The only equivalent kind of change in the labour force that has ever happened in past history was when we had uh, the great plague, the bubonic plague, the Black Death back in the 14th century, and the labor force virtually halved, uh, in which case, of course, what you got immediately was higher real wages, um, and uh, under those circumstances, uh, lower asset prices as well. Now we're going to see the reverse.
2: You know, we we, we hear a lot of talk about uh, technology being introduced and being highly disinflationary, and, and I wanted to add that actually that is Precisely what China also did. You know, if you think that China's capital stock was being completely transformed over the last 30 or 35 years since its opening um, and uh, joining the global uh, supply chain, if you think about what they were doing, they were not only introducing a brand new and the latest vintage of um, capital embodied technology into the global economy, they were also combining it with one of the Uh, most well-trained and uh, lowest cost workforces in the world. I mean, they introduced a brand new production function into the world, practically out of thin air. And so while we are talking about labor supply, I feel that that element of physical capital going over with Western expertise joining China's um, uh, production facilities should really not be underestimated. That's a really big part of the story.
0: So this... So the dynamic we've talked about, and this is sort of the core, this is the twist, the core argument of the book is that that dynamic is, is changing. Uh, It is reversing. So tell me about this reversal.
1: Well, uh, the first one is demography has clearly reversed in the sense that the ratio dependence, particularly the old and the old actually consume more than the than those of working age, but they we'll consume a lot of public goods, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security, pensions, uh, and a great deal that they need to care. Uh, you know, when you get to my age, um, over half the population actually needs some assistance, outside assistance in undertaking the normal activities of daily living uh, so that the surge in the proportion of those who are actually working in the population uh, is going to reverse. And beyond that, uh, there is, for obvious political reasons, uh, a decline in globalization. Uh, I think some people might have said that the decline would be quite small, but one of the effects of the Covid pandemic uh, has been to reinforce the idea that essential manufacturing production of many kinds uh, ought to be included within national borders. And think about the concern about having enough production of vaccinations in your own country.
0: So this reversal. So you have is uh, you're going to have less bargain. So, so the bargaining power of Western labor markets um, that 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 will increase. Um, you also have a lot, you have a lot of people who you have a, a the, the portion of the population that was sort of in the working force that was producing they are they will no longer be in the labor force and they will be consumers. So you have kind of a producers turning into consumers. And I assume that means there'll be sort of, that's, that's a lot more demand being put in the economy. Um, and the result will be, so by sort of getting this argument, so you'll have higher inflation.
1: Yeah. And um, yes. one of the things that we never knew, and one of the great concerns was, when would this have happened? Uh, because the bargaining power of labor has been really vastly reduced. And sort of 40 years ago, trade unions, private sector trades unions, were a power in the land. Now, unions such as the National Union of Mine Workers in my own country no longer even exist. Um, and the bargaining power has gone down, particularly as production in the advanced economies has shifted from manufacturing to, uh, to services. So it, it, we thought that we didn't really know how long these underlying trends, demographic trends, globalization trends, and their reversal, how long it would take uh, before they would lead to uh, a much greater inflationary context. We're sure that it will come, but our concern was when. And then, out of the blue, of course, came COVID. And the policy responses to COVID, combined with the reversal of the underlying trends from disinflationary to inflationary, I think are quite likely to kick in uh, much earlier than central bankers now predict.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 two things i was going to address is number one i think your intuition on consumers and producers is spot on i mean in in many in many senses that's one of the key frictions uh in in the composition of aging that has probably been responsible and will be responsible for the changes in inflation so if you if you think about dependence they they typically have a consumption profile um as uh, charles often argues in our seminars it's, it's, not the, it's not that the agent don't consume less, and it's, as you were saying, consumption actually rises, aided by governments. Um, but they don't produce anything. And the, uh, the people who are working, um, including those who participate uh, to a much greater extent later on in their life, they're disinflationary uh, for, for two reasons, right? First is that they are paid less than the value of their work, which is how the, the economy works. And second is they end up saving for retirement. And so if you get that balance of an increasing number of workers who share that profile joining the labor force or dominating the labor force or dominating the population, then the disinflationary numbers tend to move uh, in, in, in the ascendancy, and that brings inflation overall down. What's changing now is that the parts of the labor force, the, sorry, the parts of the population that are going to dominate are the ones who don't really consume. And equally importantly, it's not the young, it's the old. So once they end up consuming uh, these services that they need and the goods that they need for later on in their life, they're not likely to join the labor force again, which is what the young would have done. Uh, on the second point, which Charles was saying, I think you know the the, the key story right now is obviously we've had an inflation scare. Um, but what has changed is that both, both the... Um, main indicators of inflation have picked up so much steam um, that it's very difficult to see them next year, which is precisely when central banks expect inflation to come down, that they will be pointing in the same direction. If you look today, monetary aggregates are actually uh, at at very, very high levels in many economies. uh, And some, they are at levels that we have not seen in the last 40 or 50 years. The US, for example, M2 growth is at 25%. The previous peak was 10%. In Japan, the previous peak about 30 years ago was 5% for all the QE they've done. Right now, M2 is growing at 10% over there. So it's not surprising that their break-even numbers have gone up. But next year, what is going to happen is that the, the decline in velocity that has been holding monetary aggregates back in a sense will normalize because we'll hopefully start living more normal lives. And at the same time, that massive pool of personal savings that we've seen, some of which is already getting deployed into housing, will also show some patterns of going back into the spending, either in goods and services or a little bit more into housing. And that will mean that the output gap closes very quickly. So by the time you get to 2022, either the beginning, the middle or the end, what you're likely to see is monetary aggregates and the Phillips curve pointing you in the same direction towards higher inflation. And that surprisingly is precisely the time at which the Federal Reserve tells us that inflation is going to come down. Minaj
0: used the phrase inflation scare. I think a lot of people will view this as a good thing. You know, unless we get hyperinflation, this is great news because we'll have accelerating wage growth after decades of wage stagnation. So are you telling me a good news story or kind
2: of a worrisome story? I think it's a mix. It depends on who you're looking at. If you're looking at uh, the, the parts of the labor force that had seen stagnation before and were not really able to keep up with purchasing power like the rest of the economy, um, it, it wouldn't be too bad because you're talking about, um, in, in, in not the greatest context of growth, but you're talking about within-country inequality, something that has been uh, a scourge in the, labor, uh, in the global economy for a while, actually coming down. That's that's the good news part. If you're talking about productivity, we do think there is going to be greater productivity, not massively so. And we'd be we'd be very well placed to try and even come close to what Japan has delivered over the last few decades. But if you start thinking about the broad effects of inflation, they will definitely be welcomed by everyone initially. Because we do need it. Uh, I'm sure you had debt in mind as well. It lowers the real burden of debt. It does a lot of benign things, greases the wheels of the labor market. But eventually, once that starts getting into things like financial markets, it starts getting into people's uh, earnings quality. uh, It has significant attritional effects um, that, that makes it very difficult. But the most difficult part of it all is going to be, while the governments will welcome it because they're the ones issuing debt, What are central banks going to do? This goes against their religion. And if they start to fight inflation, then I fear that the ill effects from the slowdown that they will try to induce uh, will be very hard. So this will be an attritional story that over a period of time starts showing some more ugly parts. I think you're absolutely right. In the early stages, this is going to be welcomed as a huge success by central banks and welcomed by financial markets and almost everyone else is it but is this also a
0: story of higher interest rates overall i mean along with the uh, assumption that inflation is forever going to be low there's also been this assumption that very low interest rates making it very easy for governments uh, to borrow so you're also telling a story of higher interest rates overall right
1: it depends on the numbers
0: and as Manuel said uh, inflation
1: will be welcomed As long as it's below four, they won't do anything below four and 5%. Over five, they will start worrying. And then again, they assume that after the blip, which many people now expect, there to be a blip in inflation uh, sometime in the year after we all get vaccinated and we return to something like normal. The question then is that central banks claim that it will all go back to 2%. But given the massive increase in monetary growth, uh, as Manor says, uh, when you get uh, output rising uh, so fast that the output gap is closing um, and unemployment goes way down, uh, the idea that it's all going to then sort of slump slump back into inflation, uh, back towards the 2%, uh, given the policy measures, given the change in the underlying labour trends, uh, in By the end of 2022, in the beginning of 2023, central banks will be starting to worry uh, about whether that return to target actually is occurring. And again, will inflation expectations have become unhinged by then? Uh, I think, it, as Manor said, the first few months of inflation above target will be gar- regarded as splendid. Uh, average inflation targeting and all of that. It's a a question of numbers and how long the inflation remains above target. I think
2: um, one thing to keep in mind here also is that financial markets are very impatient. I mean, they they want all the answers and they want them now. They probably want them yesterday. And they're they're very skeptical that everything will go according to plan because, uh, you know, that's something that's become a bit of a pattern in the last uh, decade, or even a couple of decades. So what they've already started doing is they've already started wondering whether central banks do have it under control. And the higher those inflation prints and peaks exactly was Charles was saying, I think he has it spot on, that there's a range over which the central bank can still get away with it and say, okay, look, this is the service sector returning to normal, they've lost a lot of revenues, they have to mark up prices. Um, and, and that's absolutely right. But beyond a certain range, I think even uh, you know, as, as exactly as Charles was saying, even when you get to a four and a half five percent 5% range, it'll be very difficult for the central bank to justify it. And in anticipation of that, what you're seeing is that the bond market is saying one of two things. We can't really tell which. It's saying, well, uh, if you're not going to do what I need you to do, I'm going to do it myself, which is that I'm going to raise bond yields and make it difficult for the economy to overheat. Um, or they might be saying, what I'm anticipating is that the central bank may remain very easy at the moment. But over a period of time, there will be the distinct possibility that you have to raise rates far faster than you've got in your little dot plot. And um, that means you're, you're going to uh, have to really uh, catch up with the speed that I'm pricing into markets right now. So markets are really trying to do the tightening for the central bank or anticipating them. It's hard to tell which one is which, but the bottom line is they are tightening financial conditions and the higher inflation surprises, the tougher it will be. Of course, the, the converse is true as itself. If inflation doesn't really rise much, if it peaks at 2 2.5%, two um, this inflation scare will become more of an inflation scare than a, a reality. And then we'll have to wait and see if our demographic story Uh, uh, holds true over a longer period of time. I I don't think that's going to materialize, but it's something that we are open, uh, keeping our eyes open for.
0: Why aren't other economists talking about this? They're obviously aware of this massive labor shock reversing, but they don't seem much worried. Why? Well, there are a
1: number of reasons. One is that our story is global, whereas people tend to think only in terms of their own nation-state. And so the effect of China, which as Daniel said, this inflated the world has been ignored. And all the Phillips curve stuff uh, concentrates on the level of employment and unemployment relative to inflation in one country. And given globalization, you cannot really do that. Uh, economist, ec- economists have been far too based on their own single nation state rather than globally. They've also tended to focus on the short run uh, rather than the medium and longer term run. And if you're focused, if you're looking forward two or three years, you can ignore demography uh, because it is very slow moving. It started to change in 2010, and by now it is beginning to pick up steam uh, with quite a lot of working forces in Particularly in Europe and China, now actually absolutely declining. Uh, where are we going to get uh, the people uh, to serve in care homes, uh, to do the hospitality, uh, to do all the sort of the ac- actions in service economies uh, that are needed? They're going to be far, far and few between, um, and that is uh, effectively going to force. Uh, wages up as people chase for
0: labor. My last question here, uh, global debt I think is going up in the United States. Certainly the federal debt is gone up sharp, was already going up before the pandemic. It seems to be going up much faster now. There are expectations that will continue to increase at levels certainly we haven't seen since World War II and then beyond. If you're right, should I be concerned about the amount of debt that the U.S. government is taking on here?
1: Uh, yes, but not despondent. Concerned, <laughs> but not despondent. Uh, in that, uh, what I think will be needed uh, at these kind of debt levels is that the continuing public sector expenditures on an aging society means that a much higher level of taxation will have to be imposed on what will become increasingly a smaller proportionate working group. Now, the problem is that taxes are always extremely politically unpopular. And because of the unpopularity of taxation, because of the difficulty, because of the debt, high debt burden of raising interest rates other than very, very slowly, that's. Ultimately, the basic reason why we think that inflation will rise, because the politicians will not be able or prepared to raise tax rates sufficiently to uh, to bring what is currently a very large primary deficit uh, back into balance or even a small surplus.
2: I think it's a difficult proposition to deal as with debt. Um, the the one of the the issues that Charles points out very beautifully is most people, when they look at debt and they say, look, debt has been higher in the past, that has been around specific events. But if you look at the projections of the CBO or elsewhere in the advanced economies, you can see very clearly that a lot of the increase in debt uh, has to do with looking after an aging population, that there's really no end in sight. I think clearly the path towards uh, reducing the burden of that debt has to be faced through inflation. And part of that story, at least in my personal opinion, is going to be played out um, through central banks holding on a significant amount of the government debt uh, on their balance sheets permanently. So I think their ability to reduce their balance sheets to what it was before the great financial crisis uh, is being greatly overestimated by central banks. In fact, they will have to become part and parcel of absorbing uh, perhaps increasing at least a steady supply uh, of government bonds um, by turning them into effectively into consoles. The government can issue them and uh, keep reissuing them and the central bank keeps absorbing them. Without that, I think the challenges that Charles has, has laid out so very well would become a lot harder. So in some senses, the fact that we went into quantitative easing in the great financial crisis has softened things up a little bit and made the path a little bit easier for debt to be dealt with. But it also means that it has made it that much more likely that debt will be issued and that will be the way forward.
0: My guests have been Charles Goodhart and Minaj Pradhan. Charles and Minaj, thanks for
2: coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure.